I want to welcome all of you uh, to Christchurch, and if you haven't been here before or you haven't been here in a while, I uh, just want to let you know that no matter where you are in your life or your faith journey, you're welcome here just the way you are, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, we believe that Jesus is the king of all creation, and he has come to establish a kingdom that's unshakable, and it's eternal, and it's glorious, and uh, it's a kingdom that's so good you'll never, ever want it to end. And the good news is that he's invited all of you to be a part of that kingdom. And I'll show you that in the scriptures in just a few minutes, but welcome. Uh, we're studying the gospel of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 11. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can do that, Mark chapter 11. Last week I talked to you about a peaceful insurrection. Uh, today I want to talk to you about a forceful condemnation, a forceful condemnation. Um, last week we looked at the story of Jesus' triumphant entry Uh, He presented himself as a king. He rode on a noble steed into the capital city of Jerusalem. The Bible says that Jerusalem is the capital of the world. And Jesus presents himself to be the king. And the only problem with that is Israel already had a king. His name was Herod. And they also had a governor. His name was Pilate. And then they also had an emperor, and his name was Caesar. And so as Jesus rides into town as the king, and there's a huge crowd of people in front of him and behind him, and they're all worshiping him as the king, and this is a coronation parade. And as Jesus presents himself as the king, in presenting himself as, himself as the king, he is also at the same time saying, because I am king, Herod is not king. Because I am Lord, Caesar is not Lord. There is a higher governor than Pilate. There's a higher authority than all the authorities of the earth, and you're looking at him. It's a bold statement. The powers that be did not like that. And so over the next week, Jesus will continue to, um, in a way, uh, provoke them, and eventually they'll kill him. On Friday, they'll kill him. And so that's kind of what we're working through the last week of Jesus' life. So if last week was about Jesus' crown, this week is about Jesus' sword. And so Jesus sits in the seat of judgment, and he begins, as the king, as as the rightful king of the universe, he begins to order his kingdom in the way that he sees fit. And so that's what we're going to read today. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Let's all stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. We do this because we believe that these are not just words on a page. We stand every week because we believe that these are the words inspired by God. They're recorded by men, but they're inspired by God. And so we stand because we believe these are the king's words. And we would all do better in our life And we would see a better world if more and more people would submit to these words. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the, temples, the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, They would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
Today we will see that Jesus sets the standard. Those who live by that standard are blessed and are a blessing. Those who refuse to live by that standard will be cursed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all my friends that have gathered here today, and thank you for this place, Lord. Uh, We set this place apart for your purposes. We declare that this is holy ground, not because it's magical here or because there is a, a cross on the front of the building, but we declare that this is holy ground because you are here. And Lord, we know that you are here because we've gathered in your name, and we long for more of you, and we open your word, Lord. And you say that your, your word will not return to you void. And so we, we claim that promise right now. I pray that you will meet every single one of us, Lord, in our space of need. Lord, we come here hungry, and we long for more of you. Fill us, Lord, with your eternal word, Lord, that we may never be hungry again. Lord, I pray that you'll speak through me. I'm a sinner, and I'm only saved by your grace. I'm no better than anybody in this room. They don't need anything from me, Lord. They need a word from you. As you stand there with your, your eyes closed, your head bowed, uh, take a moment and pray for those around you. Take a second and pray for those who may be watching online. And pray for yourself that the Lord will show you your place and purpose in this world. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next day they went out from Bethany, and Jesus was hungry. You'll remember uh, yesterday, the day before this, and Jesus' life was a, it was a big day. Uh, they had the coronation parade. Jesus didn't get back to his lodging until it was very late. And uh, this is early in the morning. He sets out, going back to Jerusalem, and he, he's hungry. He's worked up an appetite. Now, this speaks to the humanity of Jesus. I think when we, you know, we read the scriptures, we hear sermons, and we, we're human, so we visualize things. And so as we're trying to conceptualize Jesus, I think a lot of us, we think of Jesus as floating around on a cloud, and there's angels always around him, and he just, he's, he's not human like us. But that's not what the scriptures teach us. The scriptures teach us that Jesus was hungry. In the same way that you get tired and you get worn out and sometimes you get hungry, Jesus was hungry. And so he's a king, but he's not a king that lives in an ivory tower and sits on a golden throne and never interacts with his people. He's a king that walks and talks and eats with the common people. He's a king that can relate. He's a king that can relate. And so uh, there were times that he got tired and he got hungry. If there were ever Legos in Israel and he stepped on one, it would hurt. It would hurt. Here's the difference. Here's the difference between you and Jesus. When you step on a Lego, chances are profanity may slip out. Jesus, the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And so he experienced the same trials and tribulations and temptations, but he never wavered in his obedience, in his faith, in his dependence, in pleasing the Father. He never wavered. He was perfect. Now, this is why this is important. Because Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Because he was completely human, and yet without error, he was perfect. Then when he sits in the seat of judgment as the king, no one can ever say to Jesus, you just don't understand. Nobody can ever say that to him, because he walked in your shoes. He experienced the same trials, and the same tribulations, and the same temptations, and he didn't falter. And no one can say to Jesus, you're no better than me. You have no right to judge me because he lived this life perfectly. 
He lived it perfectly. And so if anybody has the right to set things in order, if anybody has the right to judge, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. He was hungry. Verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, uh, fig trees grew in Jerusalem like wacky tobacco grows in Kentucky. Do you all know what wacky tobacco is? Nobody knows what that is. There's a, there's a bush right out here, and if somebody can kill it, I will give you at least $10. It's to the right of this building. I've tried to kill it multiple times, but it just keeps growing back. And it, whatever this bush is, I don't know the name of it. Somebody will tell me after this. Uh, it's everywhere, especially fence, fence rows, right? These type bushes just grow everywhere. And so that's kind of how fig trees were in Jerusalem. They just grew everywhere. This is kind of a wild fig tree. Jesus is passing by, and it's just on the road. It's just growing wild. Now, the way that this type of fig tree operates is kind of, kind of unique uh, as, as opposed to like normal fruit trees. Um, the blossoms of the fruit, uh, they come before the, sprout, before the sprouts of the leaves. Okay, so let me say it a different way. The fruit comes before the leaves, okay? And so Jesus walks up to this tree, and he's hungry. And he sees that this tree has leaves on it. And so he's anticipating walking up to the tree and finding fruit on it. Now, the thing about the fruit is it's not ripe. It's really not ready to eat. It's edible, but it tastes gross, okay? And that's how Jesus, that's how hungry he is. He's hungry enough to eat spam or chicken gizzards or whatever. And so he walks up to the tree because he's that hungry. And he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat this unripe fruit. He's expecting to find fruit on it because there's leaves on it. But he finds none. He finds none. Okay, so verse 14. He says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And so Jesus looks on this tree. He's expecting for it to have fruit because it has leaves. He finds none, and so he curses the tree. He sets in judgment of the tree, and he says, may you die. May no one ever get fruit from you again. Uh, you're, you're a worthless tree. I don't want you to exist anymore. Now, that seems harsh. I preached this sermon before, and you wouldn't believe the feedback I get. People say, well, that's kind of cruel of Jesus to curse a poor little fig tree, right? Now, I want you to hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. But um, Jesus curses the tree to die. Now, uh, in your Bibles, how many of you brought your Bibles to church? You get extra point in heaven when you bring your Bibles to church. What's the title of the next section? Somebody tell me. Cleanses the temple. That's probably what it says in most translations. Now, the heading, this is, a, you get, this is free, okay? You don't have to pay extra for this information. The headings uh, in your Bible are not part of the original documents, okay? Those are later editions. Whoever published your Bible, they added those headings. And the, the headings are actually pretty helpful. They're pretty helpful. They're not always really accurate. And this is one of the places that I would probably change the heading because uh, the heading on most of your Bible says cleansing the temple. And that suggests that Jesus goes into the temple in this next thing. He curses the fig tree, then he goes to the temple, and he, he goes to cleanse it or to reform the temple, okay? And so it suggests that Jesus is going to, he's going to somehow rehabilitate what's going on in the temple. But that's, that's not what we see, okay? And the reason we know this, uh, this section that I've read to you today is what's known as a Markian sandwich, a Markian sandwich. That's not something you can order at uh, Jimmy John's, okay? Instead, it's a literary device that Mark uses throughout his gospel, okay? And so it, it, you envision it like a sandwich, Okay? And it's a story, two stories put together. Mark will begin a story, 
And then about halfway through the story, he'll start telling another story. And then he'll come back to the original story and conclude it. Okay? We see this time and time and time again. It, it's to uh, add emphasis. It's a teaching point. And, and so when Mark does that, all those stories, those, those two stories, the beginning, another story, end, all those stories are connected. And they're all, they're all telling the same message, same teaching point. And so if Jesus, this is a Markian sandwich, if Jesus curses the tree, then what do you think he's doing to the temple? He's cursing the temple. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he went to the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Okay, so this is Passover week in Jesus' life. Passover was a huge festival for Jewish people. Hundreds of thousands of people will make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year to offer their sacrifices in the temple. Now, here's the thing about offering their sacrifices. Many of them would travel from a a pretty good distance. Traveling in the ancient world was difficult, and so they wouldn't bring their their animals from their home to sacrifice at the temple. Uh, And then also, uh, they they had to sacrifice temple-approved sacrifices, temple-approved animals. So what they would do is they would bring money, and they would come to the temple, and then they would buy temple-approved sacrifices to offer at the temple. Now, the thing about buying these sacrifices, you had to have temple currency. Now, they didn't come with temple currency, so they had to have, ex- they had to have a money exchange in order to buy the temple-approved sacrifices. Now, when you go to a UK basketball game and you get thirsty, what do you do? Some of you dig into your purse and you pull out the Diet Coke that you smuggled in. Some of you do that. <laughs> Others of you, you go to the concession stand, right? And you go to the concession stand, you're going to order a, wa- a water or a Diet Coke, and what costs you a dollar outside the stadium costs you 10 or $15 inside the stadium, right? Why is that? Is it, does, it, does the Diet Coke taste better in the stadium? No. Uh, it, is the cup lined with gold? No. It's a throwaway cup. So why are they charging you $10? They're charging you $10 because they can, right? You are obligated to buy from them or thirst to death from screaming at the referees, and so you're going to pay whatever you got to pay in order to not be thirsty anymore. That's exactly what we see in the temple. These people are obligated to buy these certain animals, and they're obligated to use this certain currency. And so people are making a killing by taking advantage of these faithful Israelites who are just trying to honor God. And they're charging an, a crazy amount of money for these temple-approved sacrifices. They're charging a crazy amount of money, fees, in order to exchange your currency for temple currency. This was especially difficult for poor people. It was especially difficult for them. They couldn't afford to come to the temple and buy a spotless lamb. And so the scriptures gave them room to where they could buy a dove. Now, a dove in their hometown would have cost pennies. But in the temple, they're charging 4 and $5, which is a lot of money for somebody that doesn't have any money. Jesus looks around, and he sees what's going on in the temple, and it makes him furious. And he begins to throw out those buying and selling, throwing it out. Now, Western Christianity has done all of us a disservice. And when we envision Jesus, when we try and put together all these stories about Jesus and think about his character and his personhood, we miss a huge aspect of who he is and how he operates. Because Western Christianity has done its very best to defang the Lion of Judah, hasn't it? We live in a culture that is so sensitive and easily triggered and so soft 
And so corporate Christianity, the K-loves and the Air Ones and the mega churches of the world who just want to get as big of an audience as they can get, they preach a Jesus who is soft and overly sensitive and a pushover. That's what they preach. And because they preach a Jesus who has no fangs, who, who has no backbone, who is limp-wristed, because they preach that kind of Jesus, then so many Christians think that they can just manipulate Jesus and make Jesus do whatever they want him to do. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. It is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Bible says that he is the Lion of Judah. The Bible says he is a mighty warrior. The Bible says he is a strong tower. The Bible says that he is death's destroyer. He is not a pushover. Okay, And so listen, as we're navigating this world, who do we think we're imitating? Who do we think we are honoring when we bite our tongue for the sake of not hurting someone's feelings? Who do we think we're not imitating Jesus when we do that? We're not honoring Jesus when we don't call out the injustice and the corruption that we see all around us. When we don't preach the gospel just because we're afraid we're going to offend somebody, we are not honoring Christ. We are not imitating Christ. Okay, He, he wasn't a pushover. He goes into the temple and he starts throwing people. He is picking up tables that have all sorts of merchandise on it and he is pumping it over. And there is stuff everywhere. There are people sitting in chairs and Jesus is grabbing the back of their chairs and he is flipping them over. The, People will read this passage, and it goes back to the fig tree because they, they want a Jesus that's tame. That's what they want. They want a Jesus that they can manipulate. They don't want a Jesus that's a king with a crown and a sword. They don't want that Jesus because they got to surrender to that Jesus, okay? And, and so the, what we see here is a Jesus who has power and who has authority, and he's going to wield his power and authority in order to set up his kingdom. Because it's for our good. We're going to get there. It's for our good. Verse 16, he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. Now, this blows me away. Um, I've got a picture here. And somebody gave me a pointer. I'm going to keep this. So if any of y'all fall asleep, I'm going to point you. Okay. All right. So this is a, this is a recreation of the temple. And uh, what we see here, uh, this is a portico, and this is where uh, they used to do the buying and selling. But by Jesus' day, they had moved it into this section, okay? Uh, right here, we'll come back to this, but right here is the Roman garrison. This is not part of the temple. They built this up over the temple because the Roman authorities, they wanted to be able to see what was going on in here, okay? So we'll come back to that. Uh, these are just city gates, uh, uh, the walls of Jerusalem. But this structure right here, that's the temple, okay? Now, this area is what's known as the courtyard of the Gentiles. And that's where Jesus is. That's where the buying and selling is taking place, okay? And this courtyard extends from here. It goes into the front there, and it goes over here to the side. This section right here makes up 35 acres. Now, some of y'all own property. You understand that's a huge amount of land. Just for reference, when you leave today, I want you to go to the side of our building, and I want you to look back this way. And back this way, the church owns the baseball field. On the back side of the baseball field is a, a, a row of trees. Okay, so look back that way, and then look over here and uh, to the road. Okay, 
and that makes up about five acres, okay? So we're talking about seven times that amount of space, okay? So Jesus is somewhere in here or somewhere over here, and it says he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. Whoa. Doesn't that blow you away? I don't know about you, but I can't even control my kids in a small minivan, (laughs) much less hundreds of thousands of people over 35 acres. What's going on here? How is this possible? This is the only thing that I can make sense of. When the king speaks, everyone listens. Jesus carries such an authority and such a power when he actually speaks. When he lays down the commands, everyone listens. When the king speaks, the Bible says the universe explodes into existence. When the king speaks, the the waters part and the walls come tumbling down. When the king speaks, the demons flee. When the king speaks, blind eyes are open. When the king speaks, dead people come back to life. When the king speaks, the Bible says, even the winds and the waves obey him. He has authority. He has power. And this is good. This is good because he's a righteous king. He's a victorious king. Everything he does is right. And, and his, he, he will accomplish his purposes. This is a beautiful thing. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. In the end, Jesus, our king, will have his way. He will. He will. So uh, here's the question as we unpack this. And because I, I get it, this is, this is not, uh, this is not the, the part of Jesus' personality, the part of Jesus' character that we often lean into. We often lean into the gentle, meek Jesus, okay? And so you read this. You read him cursing this poor little innocent fig tree, and you read of him going and thumping over these tables and pushing people out of chairs and running them out of the temple, and you're like, what's going on here? You know, did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Did somebody put something in his Wheaties or his Cheerios? What's going on? Now, what we could say is that this is Jesus' response whenever he sees injustice. We could say that but I think there's something more going on there, okay? And the reason I think that is because there was injustice everywhere. Everywhere Jesus went, there was injustice. I showed you a picture of the Roman garrison. It's right beside the temple. You know, the Roman Empire wasn't a godless, oppressive empire. It, it oppressed the, most of the known world, but Jesus didn't go to the Roman garrison. He didn't go there. Uh, in Jerusalem, uh, you know, I pointed to, to the city gates, and all. there's tax collectors all along there. Tax collectors are traitorous people who take advantage of their neighbors, their kinsmen, in order to make themselves wealthy. Great injustice going on there. Jesus didn't go to the tax collectors and flip over their tables. Uh, There in in Jerusalem, even in Jerusalem, the holy city, there would have been brothels hidden all throughout the, the region. And so there are these evil men taking advantage of these helpless women. And Jesus didn't go to those places and tump over there. Why? Why? There's something about the temple. Look, he explains it in verse 17. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus is quoting 
from Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 56, uh, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles there. We're going to be a little bit of Bible nerds for a second. Isaiah chapter 56. So God had an intention. He had a plan for the temple. Okay, And it goes back to the very beginning of time. In the beginning, uh, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then he creates man and woman, and he places them in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And in the garden, the Bible says that Adam and Eve walked with God. They had this intimate relationship. And this garden was a beautiful, it was a beautiful place. It was a place marked by abundance. They could eat from any tree in the garden. And they had this intimate relationship. They, they walked with God. They saw him face to face. They talked with God. They heard his voice. It, it's, you couldn't imagine a more intimate connection with God. The Bible says they were naked and they felt no shame. They were completely known and completely accepted. They were, they were uh, fully exposed and fully loved. And so this is a beautiful place. And so God says to Adam and Eve, this is what I want for you. And this is my plan for my creation. I want you to tend and keep the garden. I want you to cultivate and protect the garden because this is a beautiful place. This is a sacred place. This is a place where you and I will meet. This is a place where heaven and earth overlap. I want you to tend and keep it. You got to protect it. And then he also said this, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, you remember this, right? And so here's the plan. This is what God wanted. What we've got here in this garden, I want you to expand to cover the entire earth. What we've got, this intimate, beautiful, uh, abundant place of joy and peace and celebration, this place that we have in Eden, I want it to break out and I want it to cover the whole earth. And so in order for that to happen, you've got to protect this place and you've got to cultivate this place. And then you have to be intentional about expanding this place. So, So this was God's original plan. But then Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God and they broke fellowship with God and they were kicked out of the garden. And in things, from that point, they just went from bad to worse. And this, this earth that God intended to be heaven, you know, where heaven and earth overlap, where heaven completely envelops the earth and everything is beautiful and glorious and abundant and peace and joy and intimacy, was supposed to cover the whole earth. Instead, what we see is one brother picking up a rock and beating his other brother's head in, right? That's, that's the very next story that we see. And it's just like, Instead of heaven covering the earth, it feels like more and more, if you look at your Twitter feed, if you look at your Facebook feed, if you look at the news, it looks like more and more hell is covering the earth, right? Okay, so this was God. After Adam and Eve broke fellowship, after they rebelled, then God, he adjusted his plan. Now, he didn't adjust his mission, but he adjusted the strategy. And so this is what God did. He picked a family, and he said, I'm going to live with this family, Abraham's family. And I'm going to have fellowship with this family. And this family is going to turn around, and they're going to bless all the nations. And so what, what God did is he set up a tent, a tent right in the middle of this family. They called it a tabernacle. And if you study the Old Testament, what you'll see about the tabernacle is there's all sorts of imagery in the tabernacle that's supposed to draw your attention back to the Garden of Eden. And so there's a lamp in the tabernacle. And this lamp is supposed to resemble the tree of life that they found in the Garden of Eden. All all over the tabernacle, there's tapestries, and these tapestries are weaved into them, palm trees and pomegranates and all sorts of beautiful trees and plants that are supposed to remind people of the fellowship they had with God in the Garden of Eden. And so the plan was, the plan was that this tabernacle would move with the people 
and it would expand with the people. And then the people would go out into the nations, and they would invite people into God's house. Well, they finally got into the promised land, and they replaced the tabernacle with a temple. And again, the temple, all this imagery in the temple, all the carvings in the wall, the lampstand, it's the tree of life. It's beautiful imagery from the garden. And it's, hard, it's, it's inviting people back into this place where they have intimacy and fellowship with God, this place where heaven and earth overlap. And so we, re, we get to Isaiah chapter 56, and this is what God has wanted to see in his temple. This is what he's hoping for. This is his plan. This is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do what is right. For my salvation is coming and my righteousness will be revealed. Okay, no, I don't want you to miss this. There's a connection there that we miss, okay? The connection is we want to see salvation. We want to see God come and save the world. Everything that's wrong, God, we want God to come and make it right. We want to see his salvation and his righteousness be revealed. But God connects the revealing of his righteousness, the coming of his salvation with God's people preserving justice and doing what is right. You see, we, we got to tend and keep the garden. Because if we don't tend and keep the garden, then the salvation won't come. The, the righteousness won't come because it's coming through us. God is using us as the vehicle. Okay, keep reading. Verse 2, happy is the person who does this. Happy is the person who tends and keeps the garden. Happy is the person who preserves justice and who does what is right. The son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who keeps his hand from doing evil. Don't desecrate this place that's supposed to be holy and supposed to be beautiful and supposed to be like heaven on earth. Don't desecrate it. Instead, protect it. Instead, guard it and keep it. Instead, cultivate it. Instead, make it more beautiful. Extend, span, expand its walls. Expand its boundaries. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, eunuch in this culture, despised, rejected, viewed as cursed, the lowest of the low. No eunuch should say, look, I'm a dried up tree, for the Lord says this, says this to the eunuch, for the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath and chooses what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name. To the lowest of the low, God says, they will come to my house. And when they, they enter into this fellowship, into this intimacy with me, I will give them a place in the world. I'll give them a memorial. And I'll give them a name. I will give them a purpose in this world. I will make their life worth living. I will make their life beautiful and meaningful. Verse 6. As for the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord, to, the minister, who, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to become his servant, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. Okay, so this is Jesus is standing in the temple. He's so angry. He's so mad. He's thumping over tables. He's kicking people out of the temple. And this is what he said. God had an intention for this place. This place was supposed to be beautiful. This place was supposed to be glorious. This place was supposed to bless the nations, and you are ruining it. And he's so angry. Now, here's the beautiful thing, and I don't want you to miss this. There are people here today who feel like the eunuch. 
You feel like the unit. I'm, I'm a dried up tree. God has no place for me in this world. And I want you to hear me say this. God has created his house for people such as you. He has created his house. He has opened the doors and he is ready to receive you. He is ready to give you a place and a purpose in this world. And don't let anyone or anything convince you otherwise. It's right here. And God is so passionate about it. Listen, he is so passionate about it. When people, when evil, corrupt people stand in the way of God inviting the orphan children into his family, into his home, when people stand in the way of that, God gets angry. That's how passionate he is about inviting you into his family. And so Jesus, he sees all that's going on in the temple. And he sees that the Israelites are living in hypocrisy, in hypocrisy. They worshiped God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They did all the rituals. They did all the sacrifices, but they didn't pursue justice. They didn't show mercy. The grace of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God was not reflected in them. They were just going through the motions. And so just like the fig tree that had the leaves but wasn't bearing any fruit, the temple, people, people, Jesus walked to the fig tree, right? He walked to the tree, he saw the leaves, he expected to find fruit, but there was none. In the same way, people saw the temple, they walked to the temple, they saw all the sacred things in the temple, expecting to find God, but he wasn't there. He wasn't there. The temple was not fulfilling its intended purpose. It was not a house of prayer for the nations. It was not a place for the spiritual hungry to be fed. It was not a place for spiritual orphans to find a home with God. It had become a den of thieves. Corruption and greed and deceit and selfishness. And so Jesus storms into what was once his father's house. He turns over tables and chairs and he throws people out. And he's so angry Because what he sees going on in the temple is contrary to God's redemptive plan. The corruption of the world isn't supposed to leak into the temple. Instead, the glory of the God, the glory of God in the temple is supposed to break out upon the earth. Friends, we cannot change the world if we look just like the world. You cannot shine God's light if you are partnering with darkness. You cannot advance the kingdom of God if you are living like hell. And so Jesus sees that's what's going on in the temple. And they are are messing up God's redemptive plan because of their corruption. And so Jesus, in the same way he pronounced judgment on the tree, he pronounces judgment on the temple. The system is broken. The Father no longer resides there. He's taken up residence in a new temple. Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teachings. So the powers that be, the people that were overseeing this corrupt system, they heard Jesus' teachings, the authority with which he taught, and all the people rallying around him, and they were afraid. They were afraid because Jesus jeopardized their power. Jesus jeopardized their way of life, their corrupt way of doing things. And so they started thinking about how they could kill him. Now, here's an important lesson. As we are living out our faith in a godless world, 
when you start telling the world that they need to repent, when you start telling the world, unless you confess your sins, turn away from them and turn to Christ, you're going to hell. When you start telling the world the way you're living is cursed, when you start calling a sin a sin, listen to me, the world is much more likely to pick up a sword than they are a mirror. They are much more likely to reject you than reflect upon themselves. But listen, friends, that is no excuse for you not calling sin a sin. It's no excuse. You know, we, we, we get, because we've been preached a soft and overly sensitive Jesus, we as Christians feel like it's a sin to hurt people's feelings. And because we believe that, we have stopped calling people, we have stopped calling sinners to repentance. It is not for their good, it is for their condemnation. You understand that? It is our job sometimes to go in and upset the apple cart. It is our job sometimes to go into the most sacred space of someone's life and to tump over their table so that they can finally see they are living in sin. They can finally come and submit to the one true king who has nothing but blessing for them. Verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. So they leave the temple. They go back to Bethany. Next day they get up, they go to Jerusalem, and they pass by the same fig tree. Peter looks over. He says, hey, that's the one you cursed, and it's withered from the ground up. And never again would anybody see the leaves, approach the tree, expecting to find fruit and find none. That tree was cursed. It was dead. It was gone. In the same way, Jesus cursed the tree. He cursed the temple. Where is the temple today? It's gone. It's destroyed. I'll tell you about it in 10 weeks. I'll tell you about it. You think I'm joking. It's 10 weeks. So here's the question. Where can people find God? Where? Because the temple was instrumental, right? This was God's house. This is the place that people were supposed to come and fellowship with God. So where is it now? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple? And that the Spirit of God lives in you. God no longer lives in a house built by human hands. Instead, God resides in the hearts of his people and the fellowship that they share. Jesus is the foundation. You are a living stone. Together, we make up the temple. God's plan for this community is that we reflect his goodness and glory. That's his plan. You see, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, there was, the Bible says that there was a cloud. They called it a glory cloud that hovered over the tabernacle. Now, this was, this was the sign to all the people that God was still residing with his people. There was a cloud. And then after the tabernacle, that cloud at the temple was replaced with pillars of smoke. Night and day, they would offer sacrifices. And so this, this smoke that rose from the temple, that was a sign to all the people living in Jerusalem and all the pilgrims going to the holy city. It was a sign that God was still residing with his people. Now the temple's gone. 
And so the Bible says that the glory cloud over the tabernacle, that the smoke cloud over the temple has been replaced by a great cloud of witnesses. That's you. That's you. See, God wants us to submit to King Jesus in everything that we do and to manifest his kingdom in this place, in this community. If we do that, we become the city on a hill, the light on a lampstand. We're a community that's living on a higher plane. We are a faith family that the rest of Winchester, that the rest of Clark County, that the rest of Kentucky, that the rest of the world looks up to and aspires to be like and wants to be with. We are supposed to be a beautiful temple. That's what we're supposed to be. Something that's glorious and something that's intimate and something where people are fully known and fully loved. Something where people come and there's abundance there. There's an abundance of peace. There's an abundance of joy. There's abundance of hope. Some place that people can go and they can say, I found God there. God was among them and you could feel him and you could see him and you could hear him and he was there so present with us in our community. Such that spiritual orphans from every tribe and tongue and nation will be drawn to the house of God. And they will be adopted into the family of our perfect heavenly father. That's the plan. That's the mission. That's the strategy. And we will, as that happens, fill the earth and subdue it. Such that the glory of God, the garden of Eden, will cover the earth. Now, And understanding that, do you see how important this is? Do you see now why Jesus was so worked up? Look at verse 17, 1 Corinthians 3. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. So here's the takeaway. The greatest threat to the mission of the church is not outside the church. It's not what the government does. It's not about tax exempt. It's not about any persecution. It's not about any of that stuff. The greatest threat to the church is inside the church. In the same way, Christ did not permit money changers in the temple. He will not allow hypocrisy in the church. You see, each one of you is responsible for three temples. The Bible says that your body is a temple. So your your personal life is a temple that's supposed to reflect the glory, the goodness of God. Your home, parents, your home is supposed to be a temple. It's a sanctuary where your children can see the goodness and glory of God. You are a priest to your children. And friends, the church This fellowship, not the building, the fellowship that we share is supposed to be a temple, a community where people can clearly see the glory and goodness of God. Our job, like Adam and Eve, is to tend and and keep our temple. It's to protect and cultivate the temple such that the world outside of us, the dark world outside of us, has no choice but to see the goodness and glory of God reflected, shining through us. And so here's my question today. If people were to inspect your temple, if Jesus were to go into the courtyard of your temple, would he find God there? Yes. 
in your personal everyday life, you getting up out of the bed, you going to work, you coming home and eating dinner, you going and laying down at night. Where is Jesus in the midst of your personal temple? And you raising your kids and carting them to ball practice and to school and and taking them on vacation and buying them clothes and entertaining them and feeding them. Where is Jesus in the temple of your home? And in this church, this fellowship that we have, are you dragging the evil, corrupt things of the world through God's holy temple? Are you bringing into this place pride, selfishness, gossip, slander? You see, the problem in Jesus' day is what was going on in the temple didn't look any different from what was going on in Jerusalem. Friends, when people come into the church house, when they inspect our fellowship, are they going to see anything different about our fellowship than they see in the world? Or is it just more of the same? And if it's just more of the same, friends, we have failed in our mission. You see, when we call people, when we go in and we tump tables over in somebody's life, we step into the sanctuary of their life, the most, the most intimate, the, most, the, the thing they protect the most... You know, when we step into it and we start thumping tables over and say, this isn't of God, this is sin, it's not enough for just us just to say, this is wrong. We also have to give people an image of what is right. Are we doing that? Are we doing that? Is your life lived in such a way that it manifests the kingdom? Is the way you're interacting in this church, is it, is it manifesting? Is it shining the glory of God? Are we a light? In the darkness. Friends, friends, let us fight with everything in us to keep your life, to keep your home, to keep this church holy. Holy. I'm not talking about perfect. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about anointed. I'm talking about special, set apart for God's purposes. Let us make it a priority because it's so important. It is so important. That's God's plan. That's his mission. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us. And thank you, Lord, that even though we rebelled against you, you kept building a house right next door to us. And you you kept the door open and you kept inviting us in. Lord, time and time and time again, you never left us. You never forsake us. And so we, we bless your name. We praise you this morning. We just say thank you. It's only by your grace that we stand in your house, and we understand that. And so, Lord, I pray not to earn our place at the table, but, Lord, in order to honor you, in order to fulfill our mission, Lord, empower us to make sure our temples are holy. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us We'll pick up a mirror and look at our life and see if we have desecrated the life, the holy life that you've called us to. Lord, I pray that when we go home today and we look and we contemplate about the way that we are organizing our home, the way that we are raising our children, the way we're interacting with our family, Lord, help us to think, are we doing this in a way that glorifies you? Are we doing this in a way that manifests your kingdom? Lord, and then as we think about how we are interacting as a church, Lord, help us to take it just as seriously as Jesus did. 
understanding that the church is the hope of the world. And Lord, if we don't get it right, if people, Lord, if they come to this church and they come to a Christian expecting to find Jesus and there is none, then shame on us, Lord. Help, help that. I pray that breaks our heart today. And may it never be said of Christ church. May it never be said of any of the people in this room. Lord, help us to take our calling, our place, and our purpose in this world so very seriously. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing a song of invitation, a song of celebration, and a song of remembrance. This is an opportunity for you to be reminded of the body and blood of Christ. On either side of the stage, we have emblems, bread, and juice. These represent the broken body and the spilled blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we serve a king who dies for his people. We serve a king who will allow himself to be beaten, to be despised and rejected, so that each and every one of us can be blessed, we can be accepted, we can be loved, we can be welcomed into the Father's house. And so as we sing this song, I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, to take these emblems and be reminded of our beautiful Savior, our glorious King. And I'd also encourage you, if you're here today and you're carrying a burden, uh, understand that we believe this is a house of prayer. This is a place, not because it's a church, not because it's magic, but because God's people assemble here in his name, we believe that this is a place where you can connect with God. And so if you're here today and you're struggling, please come and kneel at this altar and let one of our prayer warriors pray over you. I'd also say this, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you haven't submitted to him as your king, let me tell you about Jesus. He's a king who doesn't sit in his ivory tower on a golden throne. He's a king that will take off all of his glorious robes, set his crown aside, and come and wash your dirty feet. He's a king that loves you so much that he died in order to give you life abundantly. Yes, he will require that you submit to his will and his way, but let me tell you something. Walking in the way of Jesus, our king, will lead to a heavenly kingdom, and it's worth it. And so if you're here today, and you've never surrendered to Jesus as your king, today is the day of salvation. Please come and talk to me, and let me tell you about how you can surrender to Jesus. As we sing, come.